Welcome back to the second part of my chat with legendary triathlon coach, Brett Sutton. If you're listening to this right now, I assume it means you've listened to part one. If you haven't, definitely go back and listen to that because this episode kicks off right where we left off. Enjoy. There's a couple of things inside that that I want to ask you about. Um, but yeah, that Nick Boliteri story, like I think that's sort of funny you bring that up because you sort of remind me of, of him in a way. So for people who don't know, and I'm assuming most people don't know, he's a really famous tennis coach. Um, and he he's sort of what Brett, Brett Sutton is to the, the tennis world. He's coached, you know, so many people you've heard of, like that particular story you were talking about there, which was, I think, about Jim Courier, who who went on to win, win Grand Slams and, and everyone would know him because he, he commentates the Australian Open now. But, but you know, he coached Andre Agassi and Monica Salas and Maria Sharapova and, you know, both the Williams sisters. Yep. And he, he's coached as many champions as you have. And he's sort of, he's sort of known in the tennis world the same way you are in the triathlon world. Um, and, and yeah, it is funny because there is a lot of similarities between you two as both being guys who, who, who want, want athletes who want to be there and, and want to work hard. And, and he encourages that and, and, and grooms that out of, out of people from a young age is, Hey, if, if you're under me, this is how we do things. And, and this is what I expect from you. And, and he loves people who, who sort of, um, embrace that and, and even go above and beyond in that. And, and that sounds like very similar to what you're about. Um, so that's quite interesting that you bring that up. Um, and then sort of the, the other question I had from, from everything you just said then was that sprint finish at the, the London Olympics in 2012. I'm fascinated about that. And, and I want to, I want to sort of get inside that even more than you've already taken me in from your lens. What was it like? Were you there on the day? And what was it like as a coach, um, seeing that group on the run, you know, started 10 people and broke down to five people, like you said, and, and Helen Jenkins at the time was the big pre-race fa- favorite. Like she'd been winning everything. And I remember, I remember looking at the betting odds before it and she was a dollar 34 favorite, which is in a triathlon race at the Olympics where a favorite had never won up until that year. That's pretty crazy. Um, and, and so what was that like for you seeing that? And you mentioned Erin Densham, the, the Australian girl who had beaten her, at, uh, had beaten Nicola at Malulaba, like I think just 12 months earlier or something you said. And, and then, and then she was involved in that, that group. She ended up coming third there. And, and so, yeah, tell, take me through that a little bit. What was it like as a coach, you know, watching that unfold? Okay. Well, I don't know whether it'll get me into trouble or not, but I know Nicola knows now, but, um, you know, I got a car that we call the Nicola mobile because I can tell you exactly the odds Nicola was because I backed her from eight to one into four to one. I thought she was a special. And, uh, I sat watching the race in the betting shop in Coral. Um, I never seen her that day because I didn't. I knew that she'd get nervous if I was there. Um, you know, we've got a thing as I never talked to her in a race situation, and she taught me that once in Geneva at a, a World Series race where, where it, we have a strange relationship. So she used to say, you never yell at me, never yell at me in a race, never yell at me at training. And so basically in a training session once I, I was yelling because she was going good and then she stopped and I thought, oh, my God, she's had a hamstring problem whatever. So I jumped the fence and run over. By the time I got there, she'd take it off again. And uh, it was like a rabbit. And I, and I said to her, I said, have you got an injury? She said, no, you, you yelled at me. So race day was never about that, and it was about handling her thing. So in the morning, again at the Olympics, she did another training session. We did three sets of uh, hills, which weren't very big, but in Victoria Park, 
Why? Because I'm a good coach. It took the edge off her. It took the nerves out of her. She'd be sitting around all the time chewing her fingernails, which she does better than most, down to the bottom. So I knew that she needed to have a bit of exercise. So at 4 o'clock she was up doing her running in the, in the park next to the Olympic venue. Um, and then we were on the phone all the time. She wanted me to have a look at the course find out where the wet spots were because it was raining at that particular night. And so basically I, I rang in all the, uh, all the details and said, you don't need me, this is about you. And, and so basically once she was happy, I just went and tried to get the last of my money on the, the three different shops around there and I sat there watching it on the, on the TV. And... Uh, Turned everybody inside out in England, of course, because so all the local punters, I, I read a blog on it if you want to read it somewhere, but all the local punters were, you know, going for the English girl and I was the, I was the guy sitting in there that was basically for the Swiss girl. So it was a really, uh, it was a magic moment in my lifetime and then, of course, I won again when I won on the work. I, I won again when they, they were betting on the photo finish. So it was a it was a strange type of situation, but um, she she would be sick the three days beforehand, and um, so that sort of hurt a lot of the confidence in the people around her. And then uh, what people don't know is the reason she was never supposed to go to the front. She was supposed to sit on the back of the Sweden because, of course, she was trained by uh, Darren Smith again, and I knew she had a kick. And I thought, well, if she can outkick her, she can outkick the others. So it was our uh, it was our situation to sit on the back and wait. And of course, that's when I did have my nightmare when she moved to the front with about twelve hundred meters to go, which was never the uh, never the plan. It was up over a little rise. There was only one little rise in it. And uh, you know, being a horse trainer, I was treating her like a jockey. I said, you sit there and don't move. And then when you come around the corner, don't move. It's not 400 metres, it's 500 metres. So just sit, 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 and um, then let fly, you know, which was how I expected it to go when I seen the race. And, but then at the 1,200 or where the rise was, she went over the rise. She looked uncomfortable, but I could see it perfectly because I was sitting in I was sitting in the betting shop and they had the whole, you know, the close, and I thought something's not right. And then I didn't give it another thought. I thought, oh, God, she's, you know, she's lost her mind here. She went to the front and started, she started, uh, what do they call it, surging on everybody. And I couldn't work out. I thought, well, what's she doing? What's she doing? Is she insane? And, um, yeah, so then she surged all the way and then all of a sudden she let rip with a sprint from 500 metres out and it just destroyed the other three. And uh, But the one I was worried about was sitting right on her shoulder and had this, had the sitting shot, and she fired it. And um, I think Nicola held her off all the way down the straight, you know. And uh, and then I, I thought, uh, there's no doubt in my mind she won. I had 500 on her on the photo. It was just that she laid back and the other girl dipped, but, she, you know, I, I was sure she had that under control. Um. But, yeah, I couldn't work it out. And then when I went and seen her, I, I said, what were you thinking? What were you doing? You let the Olympics get to you because see, we always had lots of talks about these type of things, you know. We didn't talk about tactics on the day. We worked it out two months before. I said, what were you thinking? She said, I've got a massive cramp. 
maybe from, you know, throwing up and whatever. I was having enough water. So I got a massive cramp when we went up over the rise in my leg. And, and I said, really? She said, oh, yeah. And so I thought if I wait for a sprint, it might tighten right up and I won't be able to get moving. So she thought I'd got to shake them out so I can get a medal. And so that's what she did. So this, that's the inside scoop, Jack. You've got it from the horse's mouth, basically, or the next horse's mouth. She she went early because she wanted to get rid of two of the people so she could get a medal. And she said, once I got rid of those two, she said my leg was just tightening up. It wasn't, you know, it didn't freeze up. I don't know when you get a, you know, if you get a real bad cramp, it just shuts you down. She said I was waiting for it to shut me down. It didn't shut me down. And she said it was just like a bit of a dead leg, so I thought I'll run through it. And then she said I, uh, I couldn't, I couldn't uh, gamble on the last two hundred because my leg just felt stiff. So she said I went from the five hundred metre mark, and so uh, that was that race. And for anyone who hasn't watched that race, we're talking about the 20, 2012 London Olympics, uh, the the female race there. Uh, and you've got to go onto YouTube and search that because it's one of the craziest sprint finishes that we've ever seen in triathlon, um, if not actually probably the most crazy sprint finish. Um, and and hearing this story and then watching that will make it five times five times more entertaining. So that's that's awesome insight. Um, speaking of this, and and I'm I'm not sure whether you'll be able to answer it, but I, I am very curious because you know, like I like I said in the introduction, and and like we've talked about, you have had some crazily like crazy success in big races um so is there a race that stands out from a from an athlete that you've coached as the best performance that that you know that an athlete has ever had under you oh that's a big statement um well obviously that race in the short course was you know unbelievably well done she was just as good in 16 as well um, it was a great race. She did everything to try to win that. So there are races that was really, uh, really stood out. Um, the greatest human race I've seen, and I don't want to bring it up sort of because people don't know, is when Loretta Harrop, her brother, died. And that was when, um, Luke was killed by a car on the Gold Coast. And then 10 days later, Loretta won the Australian Championship. That was that was the gutsiest thing I've ever seen in sport. And of course, Chrissy Royton doing 90 minutes on the bike. She had the puncture and then coming back and winning it. That was an amazing race. And then when Danny got stung by the jellyfish in 215 or 216, when she was way behind everybody, people didn't understand. They thought something was wrong. She was terribly hit with the jellyfish. And she couldn't move, so she she had to sit and take 10 minutes in the transition area to try to get her body going again. But the fact she even wanted to keep going was just a you know magnificent show of courage. And then the uh, the ability to uh, not just race better than everybody else, but the ability not to panic. Um, so it's another great race to watch because she didn't go after him straight away, which obviously she had the weaponry. But she didn't. She stuck to the game plan. She was, didn't take a minute off anybody in the first uh, 40 kilometres. So everybody thought that was the end of her. And then she, she, you know, she stuck to a game plan. She, the fact she was 10 minutes behind everybody never, never infected her. You know, she started to build up from the halfway on the bike, which was our plan all along. 
And then she just uh, she rode third fastest bike split, including the men, on the last 40K. I thought that was pretty extraordinary that everybody missed it, but I didn't because I'm looking at the form guide. And so her last 40K was close to under 60 minutes in the Kona that year, and then she went on to win that. So unbelievable, unbelievable, unbelievable. And as I said to you, Chrissy's win after losing 19 minutes, unbelievable. Nicola's win, unbelievable. Loretta Harrop's fantastic career. The whole career was unbelievable, to be honest with you, to come from 52 minutes and down to where she said, I'm not retiring until I have the fastest run split. And uh, one year in Gamagori, that's why people said, why didn't you do the Commonwealth Games the next year? She never was interested in that. She made a promise to me in 1997. She said, I won't retire till I have the fastest run split because she got off the bike in Sweden in the World Cup first by a minute and ran last by a minute. And, uh, you know, because she wasn't a runner. She was a swimmer and... She said to me then and there, she said, I won't retire till I got the fastest run split. And due to her absolute brilliance in her mind, sometime in 1990, what is it, 2000, was it 2005 or something? I don't know. You, you can look it up. She outran Emma Snowsill to take the win in Gamagori and she never raced again. She said, I'm finished. That to me is courageous in itself because she would have, kill them at the Commonwealth Games and whatever, but it just shows you how orientated she was to what she was trying to achieve. So, you know, you don't get much more fantastic than those couple of couple of races. And then a similar question, but slightly different. Um, is there sort of one block of training that one of your athletes has has, um, has done that stands out as as the best or the, you know, the in your opinion, the, the greatest block of training you've ever witnessed as a coach? Oh, that's, that's too hard to answer because I don't want to disrespect people. The people we're talking about, we've had great champions as well that I haven't listed here, but they were more talented. Uh, I've got to say Dan, Dan is talented, so we won't go that way. But I mean, like, we've had a lot of champions who did have talent and were able to do things. But, you know, what I might add, not because I'm being pro-Australian, but, you know, I think a guy that was most likely the best all-round triathlete of all time, and that includes Mark Allen, if we want to go over the short course, was Craig Walton. Two out, Craig Walton would have beat anybody, anytime, any day, and even to today. And they just, you know, when you train with them every day, you see them do things that makes your hair stand on end. I remember having to trade in my scooter because I was motor pacing Craig when we were in Canada one year. I had to trade in and get a get a bigger engine because on the flat and on a good day, he could hold 85, 90 kilometres an hour behind the scooter. Um, and his swim was so strong. And people used to say, yeah, like for a 90-kilo man to actually run what he did, and people didn't realise because we used to only win to – we used to race to win. and but. Craig's ran me 15 minutes for a 5K on a track race and nobody's seen that. So for me to be as, you know, the big as he was and then to swim as good as he did and ride was fantastic. Like remember he won eight World Cups when they were drafting going off the front with a 
30 men trying to chase him down. Uh, it, it was extraordinary, you know what I mean? And he never got the kudos. I, I think he deserved at a world level, you know. If he'd take anybody of those guys and said, okay, you're in lane eight, you're in lane one, you swim to 1,500 and you ride your own bike. He was just in another league, as was Loretta Harrop at her time. Another league. I think they made one mistake at the ITU. They uh, they put one race on where they said, we'll have a non-drafting race. I think Loretta won up by six minutes. Uh, you know, and then she's getting beat the next week in a race where there's, you know, four witches' hats and everybody's drafted. So I come back to, you know, me being bitter. That's what annoys me, you know. Races like that, people don't understand. They don't understand the levels. Like Emma Snowsill never got within three minutes of a time trial of training of Loretta Harrop at the 30K course. And how do I know that? I used to train them, and that's why I've got that knowledge, Jack. It's not about me knowing more. I know what they've done. I know what Nicola does in training. I know what Jackie Gallagher used to do in training. I know what these people do. And the sessions they did, and I know with the men. And I remember guys like I think Australian guy won three world championships. I can still remember in Jinderbine that Craig Walton used to give him three minutes head start over thirty k and beat him in the bike every day. Never beat Craig once. Uh, so who's the world's best athlete? <laughs> yeah, a triathlete. It's a joke. <laughs> um, and so that that is why I felt very happy for Nicola and and and. I never trained Alistair Brownlee, but they brought this, They brought it back to these guys are real triathletes. Do you know what I mean? They can do it all. They can do it all. Gomez can do it all. Um, you know, Macca could do it all. Macca could go long. Macca could go short. Um, he could ride. You can swim that great. That was only hold up, but he could run and squid as he did. And, uh, and so those people just stayed competitive right through and, and now we've got a situation where you know Nicholas bound out I think she got sixth at the Olympics at 40 you know like they're still so much better than the young ones and the reason why is is because the way they're training them it's as simple as that you know it's a, that's we bring it back to coaching you know these young kids are not getting any um stamina in their training anymore there's just no, there's no stamina anymore. You know, they're, they're giving them all these short things, shortening the race up. I know we've had people in my group that's 16, 17, one half Ironman championships. Uh, people don't know. You go back to Brad Bevan. Brad Bevan won his first pro race. He was 14. Uh, <laughs> see, these are things that people don't know. I could give you a list of them. You know, the, the, you know uh, Nick Croft, if we want to go back to the old, old days, Nick Croft. Uh, you know, winning pro races at 16 and we're not talking, we're talking things like 2K swim, 80K and 15K run, stuff like that. And uh, these guys lasted for so long. Um, as I said, uh, Emma Snowsill, first paycheck was in a three-quarter distance Ironman. Um, Ronaldo Colucci, who I talked about, was so poor, he was in our social project, he... Uh, we, I think he was 17 or 18, he got eighth in the uh, Ironman. And everybody said, you're burning him out. We needed to do that to get him some money. Burn him out, he's still going now. He got third in the World Championships last year in the Ironman distance. Been to two Olympics, three times 
champion, been going now for 20-odd years. Uh, we go back to our own history. You're from Melbourne. The great, and I mean the great, Steve Foster. But nobody knows about these guys anymore. Nobody even, you know, Steve Foster was the first guy to beat Mark Allen. Uh, just fantastic. You know what his first check was or somewhere around there? He got third at, he got third at Foster and he was 17 years of age. Went on to become a legend in France, absolute legend. He was still racing when he was 34, 35. But, you know, oh, you burn them out if they go too much too early. You burn them out, you know. And I think Steve won seven Australian um, Olympic distance titles. These are the things that people don't understand that I carry with me to the end of the career. So when I just got my the Greek kid I told you to watch, he just won his first pro race, half Ironman, um, you know, because I don't have the federation saying, you're killing this kid, you're going to do this, we need to do that, we need to. They don't care. He swims in the ocean because where he lives is on an island in the middle of nowhere. Um, so they don't really have any handle on it. And that's the best thing that we can do for Greece because if they keep away, I'll make him an Olympian. Uh, that's, so, you know, people can say you're arrogant to say that. You know, I'm always arrogant till they do it and then they turn around and shut up and don't say anything. They don't say, well, you showed us and that's a good job. You know, when Max Drew, you will never get Max Drew to do this. And then I say, oh, you go to the Olympics. And he goes to the Olympics. And all I hear is crickets. <laughs> <laughs> that's you know that's life and I couldn't give a shit about it so I'm happy I'm just hopeful you know I haven't done an interview for over 15 months now because I just didn't feel the need anymore but you know uh, you're lucky Robbie talked me into it and he said you know you can help some young people out there and some coaches that want to know the real deal and uh, so that's why we did the interview yeah and we're bloody appreciative that you've come on because uh, I think everyone listening will agree that that you are just a wealth of knowledge uh, and, and hearing you talk about the sport is really refreshing for me um, because it has sort of gone uh, in a direction that goes the opposite way of, of the way you think a little bit, um, like you've talked about from a, from a federation point of view, from a coaching point of view, um, and just a, a general approach to the sport point of view. So it is, it is really refreshing to hear your take on it and, and, and I'm glad you came on. Um, can I just do one thing before we end? Can I just ask you sort of a few more quick fire questions? And I just want to get your take on a, on a few things that, that I'm really interested in, in having your opinion on, if that's all right. Okay, fire away. Okay, so we've talked about this a bit, but, but I sort of want to condense it a little bit. And I know it's hard to condense this because it is a broad issue, but what is the one training mistake that you see people make that you wish they would not make? Um. Well, when they when they get sore, they think they're injured. And so with that, what do you think people should do? Keep away from the physio. <laughs> so you think that if it's just something that's little and, and not bad, that, that just continuing to train and, and do what you're doing is the right approach? No, we change the training again. But see, that's what uh, I was getting across to you. So if, if somebody's got a niggle, if they had a track session coming up, the first thing you have with athletes is, they want to do the track session so they don't tell you. So they make a little thing a bad thing. And then they run off to the physio and then they stick their fingers in and make it a catastrophic thing. So the first thing is that's where the communication is very important. Uh, just did it today 
oh, I know she's going to kill me about this interview, but I just did it today with Nicole. You know, I had a session in my mind. She said, I've got a little bit of a, this, and so I changed the session. And so we just did a non-stop slow run uh, rather than her do speed work. Um, and then a day and a half later, it's gone and everything's good as gold. Whereas if she went out and did the speed work, it would turn into something that was nasty. Um, so that's that's the biggest thing. We, we do train. It's like it, we, we, we look at it this way. We've got to say it's, there's three things. It's bone, tendon or muscle. So the first thing we want to do is we never want to run if it's a bone type thing. If it's a tendon thing, we want to go very slowly. And if it's a muscle thing, we just try to get the blood into it. So if we've got a sore calf or whatever, uh, my guys will still run, but it'll run very slowly. Uh, if it's a bone problem, they don't run at all. Uh, if it's a tendon problem, well, you know, with the footballers, so you've done a bit of work with those guys. The most important thing, if you've got a hamstring, if you're an Aussie rules player, is they run them to get the blood to the hamstring. They do it slowly, but they don't sit there and do nothing for 10 days. Meanwhile, what we do is we run off to the physio. The physio says, nothing for 10 days. Uh, come and see me three times. And uh, then they go, okay, you're ready to go. And then the people go get on the track, and then next thing their knees are going on them. And they don't understand why. Oh, I've just got three. How many times you heard it, Jack? You wouldn't believe it. I've got three injuries in a row. And the reason they get injured in a row is because they won't go back to retrain themselves. So when we come back in, the next week is about them, uh, shall we say, actively recovering. So we just don't bring them straight back into the workload. Uh, you know, we, we start off as far. So that's a big problem that people have uh, at the present moment. You know, they work till they get injured, then they try to get it fixed, and then they rush back. The rush back kills them. And then uh, what's, what's one thing, if you could nail it down to one thing that you would change about the sport of triathlon right now? Well, we did this. In 1997, it was obvious that there were so many people, and I tried to explain it to the world body back then, that back then you had a couple of good swimmers. Now I come from a swim background, and I said everybody be able to swim 17 minutes within four or five years as soon as they get serious. So drafting is going to be inevitable. Okay, so what I did with Rob Pickard again, we won one race, and we... we uh, let me see. What we did was we filmed it because we wanted to take it to the ITU and say, this is how you can do drafting and still find the best triathlon person. And so we did it in Canberra. We did uh, 500 swim, 12.5K on the bike, I think, and then we ran 3.3. And we did it three times through. So it was Olympic distance. And I said, you'll find the best ones there. The ones that can, can swim but can't bike are going to get found out. The ones that can run but can't bike are going to get found out. And that's what we did. And it was the most remarkable race. The changes in leads, as you can imagine, like Craig would be off going for it in a swim and then the guys would come through. Blah, 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 blah. And uh, that could be the perfect way to do the triathlon. Uh, at ITU level and find the best triathlete. So you, even though there's drafting involved, you still get over the Olympic distance and you still see who's the best. And, of course, that's what happened. Like Craig Walton won by like eight minutes and I think Macca was second and he was another six minutes ahead of somebody else because they were the real triathletes. And you know what the ITU did when they seen it? 
they were horrified. They said, oh, that means all the countries that have got not really good athletes, they vote for me at Congress, so we can't do that because we'll only have the very best athletes racing. That's why they have what they have, mate. They want 50 people there and 30 shouldn't be, or they'd be doing heats and finals. You know, in Europe, they used to do heats and finals back in the back in the 90s. Back then, they used to have heats and finals. Run the heats on Thursday or Friday, and they used to do the finals on Sunday. And there was only 25 people in the final, and you got a fair race. Now they're throwing 90 people into the World Series races. If You could be Craig Walton and be on the outside, and if the way that the course architecture is, can't get across. It's impossible. It's like giving you a 100-metre head start to the people on certain areas. This stuff happens all the time. And, and uh, that's what drives me mad, where, you know, they could, if I was doing the world, if you ask me, okay, Brett, you're in charge of the ITU, what would you do? I'd do three sprint races, break 30 up in each race and say top 10 goes to the final and then have 30 people racing the next day in a proper race like I just noticed. You'd end up with the best triathlete, without a doubt. And then another one. Gym or, 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 you know, using weights as a triathlete or runner or cyclist, is it, uh, is it important or is it a waste of time? I get a lot of hassle in this stuff. And the best way I do it is show my daughter. My daughter's a skier and she just represented Australia, by the way. So um, she just went to the World Junior Championship. So we don't use weights, only on very, very exclusive times. I think Jackie Gallagher did a little bit of arm weights. But we don't. Now, when people say, oh, so they don't do weights, it's ridiculous. Nobody does more weights than we do in the water specifically. We do a lot of paddles. We do a lot of pulling. So 30% of all our work's at least strength work in the water. On the bike, every third rides, hill or power. Uh, on the run, we do lots of hills. So, of course, I think we do more strength work than anybody else. However, we don't do it in the gym. So, of course, that don't count. So people say he's anti-weight, anti-weight, anti-weight. So I posted up some pictures of my daughter in the gym pushing squats of 140 kilo and she's 50 kilo. Uh, Weights are great in their right spot for the what sports it need. Now, do I need someone to put three kilo of muscle on and then they're trying to run a 28? 10k for the men uh don't think so and so you know that's that's the point every kilo you put on you maybe lose 15 seconds so there's got to be that balance and so for us the balance is to do it specifically so yes huge weight person sorry i'm not in the gym and and you sort of just just touched on it there which was my next question which is uh funny is uh weight how big a factor do you think the weight of an athlete plays in in how good a triathlete or runner they are? Obviously, in running only. And so when you get these little small, stupid races, uh, it'll mean a great deal. In Ironman, I think you've got to be strong. I think too many people have had bad Ironmans because they've tried to get as light as possible, they've copied the bike riders, you know. If I get leaner and leaner and leaner, well, what happens is you get off the bike and you've got no strength left and your body falls to pieces because you're just too lean. Um, I know that goes against what everybody thinks, but, you know, with Danny, for instance, and I know I did the same with uh, Chrissy, I used to feed him cheese 
because I thought they were getting too light. And I thought if they got too light, they'd lose their bike strength. Danny's better at a certain weight than she is when she's, you know, for instance, she's at least six, well, when she's at her very, very best weight, she was kind of slightly six to eight kilos heavier than when she did ITU. And then, again, you sort of just, I guess, with the cheese factor, you sort of touched on what I was going to get to. Is there anything that you recommend with your athletes in terms of diet or do you not really touch it? I don't touch the weight unless, particularly with females, unless they come and ask for advice because uh, there's so much ridiculousness out there now and I don't want to get involved with that because people say to me, and we call it the, the invisible training, you know, so if someone's overweight, and all they're telling me is they're not disciplined enough. So why waste my time talking about it? They know when they come in, they're told. Um, and so they'll they'll adjust to it, you know. It's a part of the, none of the champions have ever had a problem with that area because they have the discipline and the self-discipline. What I do find is the, the craziness of eating so many carbohydrates is just not going to help you in an island. So uh, we stick to the, you know, I like to see my athletes eating meat three times a week. I like to see them, you know, if anybody said, well, give us give us something scientific, well, I'd say 40, 30, 30 is close enough to what I believe in the, in the uh, eating department. So then nobody attacks me about it because, oh, Mark Allen used to do that, so, well, it must be good. So, um, yeah, that's what we try to do. But I think too many people are under protein, especially the women. Um and eating far too many carbs. And then like a big catch word in, in triathlon at the moment and in sport in general is recovery. Um, how, yeah. how, big a, how big a part in your training does recovery play? How much do you talk about it? And, and what is like the one recovery tip that you would give to people? Well, that's the $64 question that people don't understand and the people in my group do understand. The way we do our training is they're recovering every day from something. So we don't do three things a day. We don't, you know, run, swim, bike, run, swim, bike, run, swim. We don't do that. And um, I think that's the reason why we've had so many, uh, so great a run, touch wood with the uh, with the injury, especially with the females. Our females only run every second day. And so that drives everybody insane until they come and actually see it in action. So not only are we resting their run legs, we're resting their bones. And I think that's why we've had uh, the success we've had. I know everybody will tell you from the old day, oh, they get injured, they get injured, they get injured. You know, Loretta, Loretta Harrell will tell you that I saved her because she was always injured before she came to me. And she did a whole career injury-wise because she didn't have the legs and conformity and the swimming sort of, she had bone problems the whole time. And... Uh, you know, basically what we did was manage her like an old broken down horse. You know, we didn't know if she's going to race on Sunday till we seen the Wednesday session. But those days are 20 odd years ago. You know, people should look at, uh, you know, what's happened over the last 20 years. And one of the things I did do specifically is we did change the routine of our program, especially for the women. And so we don't run hard on consecutive days or we will run on a treadmill. Uh, we do a lot of treadmill. Um, again, it takes the eccentricity of the hitting the ground. We don't swim every day. So we might swim hard. Yes, you hear, oh, God, they do six and seven K sessions. The next day they don't swim at all. 
How is that any different to someone that swims 4.5K on Monday, 4.5K on Tuesday, 4.5K on Wednesday, 4.5K? Um, we, we might do the 6K, 6.5 on the Monday, and on the Tuesday they might do a K and a half recovery after a run set. So that's how we do it different, and that's why people can't understand why we do it because then they look at what we do and then they try to copy it, but they try to copy it in the framework of the triathlon program of doing everything. And it doesn't work. And then um, we talked about the the greatest female triathletes of all time who, you know, you, you've coached pretty much all of them. Um, and, and you've mentioned a few male athletes um, as, as we've, as we've talked, but in your opinion, who is the, who is the greatest male triathlete of all time? Oh, well, you have to, you can't do that straight up front. I can tell you my rationale. i I've been a great Dave Scott fan for the Ironman because he took what he had and made himself a super champ. And with Mark Allen, people don't realise, Mark Allen went to university with a swim scholarship and a run scholarship. Uh, but Mark Allen, Mark Allen was running 14 minutes for 5K before he started triathlon, 14.10, I think, because I do my history. I'm a history buff in that area. You learn so much from athletes. And I've noticed that in the swimming, as we said with the swimming, we copy the 1980s mentality of how to swim, not the 2020, because I think that styles that were done back then suits triathlon. Um, but to get back into it, as I said, short course athlete, nobody got near Craig Walton if we did a time trial. Just boom, I don't care who you throw up. Alistair Brownlee, possibly Simon Lessing might have got near him. Um, because I've seen Simon train twice. I spent times with, with him and he was a genius, uh, fantastic on the bike, good, fantastic runner, could swim well, but he was a swimmer when he started. He was a bit like Mike Allen. So Mark Allen, obviously, he was fantastic, you know, and, and uh, so in the realms of the drafting, I think Mark Allen was great. Dave Scott, unbelievable to get down to what he did when he had to. Um, you know, the fact I can them as coaches doesn't mean as athletes I didn't think they were fantastic. But there's a different thing between being a coach and being an athlete. You know, it's like, uh, you know, I'm not a very fast triathlete. I've never done one, never got him. It's a bit like you said, Nick Boliteri didn't play tennis. <laughs> you know, it's like a piano tuner, you know. The best piano tuners don't play the piano because they become too subjective. And so I've always had that ability to look out of the thing. It doesn't mean I haven't done the work and I haven't experimented. I've ran 500K weeks myself and I'm not a runner. I just see the effect on the body and then breaking it down. Okay, 30 today, 12 tomorrow, 12, 35. I've done all that stuff. Our squad, we still got a record in the squad that's held with, you want to know, crazy. We did 105, 400s, leaving every two minutes. The record holder on that's me. But that's going back a long, long way ago. And uh, I've had athletes that have been, that we've done that just to test them on their, you know, shall we say, willpower. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's so subjective. And that's why when you're talking about great athletes, you know, like, as I said, you know, Craig up to a half Ironman was a monster. Uh, Macca could do both. He could go short, he could go long, he could go half. Wonderful. But, you know, I think if you keep it to those. And today, obviously, Alistair, fantastic. What Alistair did was fantastic. What Johnny did was just 
maybe because he was a little brother, he didn't do what his big brother did, but fantastic, those guys, you know, to do 12 years as, as they did. Um, you know, on coming out of Leeds, they never lost who they were. They still train at Leeds. Um, absolutely super, super stuff, you know, for me. The toughest, tough, tough, tough guy, tough guy, Alistair Brownlee. Uh, you know, just full respect. Now the new guy is pretty good, but he's got a way to go yet to prove he's got the same sustainability as a Nicola or an Alistair. I've seen plenty of people come on the scene for one or two years and then they disappear. So, you know, the time is always my best uh, best examination. So Mark Allen was around for a long, long time. Uh, Greg um, Craig Walton has been around for a long, long time. I think he won nine, nine uh, what's it called, uh, the race up there, Noosa. Uh, they stood the test of time. You know, they seen through the second generation, uh, Dave Scott, Test of time, unbelievable. Made himself a bike rider, made himself a runner. You've got to uh, attest to that as being just remarkable in a sport like ours. And I just fear we're not going to see them too much longer like that because all of them could do both too. But they could go long and they could go short. Mark Allen won a little short course and was fantastic. Um, you know what I mean? So, uh, and the girls, you've got four out of five nailed, you know, so you're done well there. And uh, last one, thanks so much for your time again, Brett, because this has been this has been probably my favourite chat I've had on this podcast. I just I, I find you a fascinating person, so I can't thank you enough. Um, my my last question is: if you could have coached one athlete uh, in the sport of triathlon, or or maybe it's a, another sport that you didn't, who would it be, and why? Oh, mate, that's uh, you know. That gives people up. I see, I've seen so many athletes that I thought I could make a lot better, in, and but I've never been a recruiter. Just not my style, you know. If they come to me, they come to me. And the bigger, the badder the messages that people put out, it, it, it fills out. I'm lucky because it's a filter. Nobody turns up at my door if they already don't know they're going to work out. <laughs> so that's the thing, you know. I've seen plenty that, you know, I'm sure I could have made a big difference to. But... The fact of the matter is uh, they're happy with their career, so that was great for me. I, I just, I'm just not that type, you know. I, I know I, I, I reached out to maybe one or two athletes my whole career. I can still remember who they were, and one was uh, Tim Dong um, when he was struggling, and I just felt bad for him because I had mates. I, well, I had people in our squad that were good mates with him, and I knew I could help him. Uh, which we did, and then uh, the other one was the great Nicholas Perry. Nicholas Perry resisted for eight years before she joined us. So uh, I remember watching her go. I, I remember getting in the car and taking my my now wife and then girlfriend. We drove three hours to watch her run 1500 run race when she was 17. And I uh, I said to my wife, I said, if that girl one day finds because she was doing triathlon but she couldn't swim. Um, and I said, if that girl finds her way to our place, one day I'll make her a super champ. And uh, it took a while, but she got there eventually. And then uh, after the War of the Worlds, basically for two years, um, she settled down and the rest is history, as they say. 
Yeah, I think that's a pretty good note to end on. Um, like I've already said, I, I literally can't thank you enough, Brett. Uh, that was a, an eye-opening and, and insightful chat and, and I'm privileged to, to have had it with you. So thanks for giving me your time and, and I hope people took a lot from this. I hope people took as much from this as I did because, uh, yeah, I don't think there's anyone in the sport of triathlon that you'll learn more from talking to than yourself. And and like you said, you've been in it for 30-plus years and, and you've had oh, – I think it's over like 40, 30, 30, 40 world champions or, or world championship wins and, and that kind of thing. So it's, yeah. a, it's a crazy resume that, that not many people can even, you know, begin to fathom, let alone compete with. So, yeah, I, I really appreciate your time and, and, and value, value what you've done for the sport and, and chatting to you was, was yeah, awesome. All right, thanks very much for the time. I appreciate it. Have a good day, Brett. See you later, mate. See you, mate.